pleasant surprise in you to look at it. Like, woohoo! We get one, buy three, get one free. So we got one off. Um, so it's just Joel chapters one through three, the whole book. And then we get to take a little break this week from oracles of doom and judgment for the northern kingdom of Israel. Don't worry, there'll still be doom and judgment. Um, but we're going to take a, a little brief break from those oracles for a natural disaster. So, um, and the book begins in Medias race, right? Joel is not predicting a future calamity, but one that is already upon them. Tiny print, but you can read along. Uh, what the cunning locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and without number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and splintered my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. And then skip to verse 10. See all these pictures of locusts? Um, the fields are laid waste. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine fails. The oil languishes. Be confounded, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine withers, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are withered, and gladness fails from the sons of men. So, woo! Okay, bad things happen. You know, uh, Joel's funny. It's funny, I showed you this picture as Hosea. I could just use him every week. Now they say, no, this is Joel. So. <laughs> but they all kind of look the same, right? They're like these old guys wearing robes. Anyway, um, we don't know where we are. Somewhere in Judah, maybe? You know, we don't know when we are. Um, we aren't even positive who this Joel, the son of Pethuel, is. His name means the Lord is God. Okay, good prophet name, right? Um, all we know is a natural disaster has wrought havoc and caused panic and fear. Wherever he is, this terrible thing has happened. And what is this terrible event? It is a plague of locusts. Check that out. Look at my little locusts. That involved much pasting, copying and pasting, and rotating. Anyway. Okay, so here we go. Chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their light has never been from of old, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but after them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, 
like the crackling of a flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale. Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the walls. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their path. They don't jostle each one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his host is exceedingly great. He that executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Um, aren't you glad you came this morning? Um, so Robin completely stole a march on me a couple weeks ago when she talked about the plague of locusts in the book of Joel and then talked about the plague of grasshoppers in Laura Ingalls Wilder. Because I was all set to tell you about visiting the banks of Plum Creek uh, with my daughter on our Minnesota Literary Dream Tour. And so I, who have stood on the banks of Plum Creek, let me show you a slide. This is my daughter Lucy walking along the banks of Plum Creek. If you wondered what Minnesota looks like in April, like that, right? <laughs> um, yeah, everything was brown. So, and then there's the uh, Garth Williams illustration of Paul trying to trying to save the wheat crop, right, when the grasshoppers came. And it's very interesting um, if you read the chapter in on the banks of Plum Creek. The description is very similar to Joel. This is what it is like to experience a plague of locusts, how they march like an army, they march straight through the house, they march over baby Carrie, you know, and, and um, they, have, they have to shake them out of their clothes, and everywhere they walk they crunch, and everything gets eaten, and all, all the farmers try to light um, smoke, so just, and it does absolutely no good, right? Does not, there is nothing you can do, and they eat everything green, everything. Um, they eat the wheat, there goes Pa's crop, right, that he borrowed against already. They eat the prairie grasses, they eat the willows, they eat the oats, they eat the plum thickets. And like the people in the book of Joel, Wilder remembers the fear and the worry left in their wake, right? She remembers Pa having walked hundreds of miles to the east to find work to feed the family. So of course when I was in Walnut Grove, I said, where did Pa walk to? And the lady could handle the question. She said he probably walked to Rochester, Minnesota, because they had family there, so that he could um, work in the fields. So poor Pa, look, get out your road atlas or your phone, and look, clock the walking time from Walnut Grove to Rochester, Minnesota that Pa did. And remember, his boots were already worn out, so it was bad. Um, and Wilder remembers in the next book that they have to move. They have to leave the beautiful house that Pa built after they moved out of the dugout on the banks of Plum Creek. They have to, they have to sell the beautiful house and they have to move on um, because the debts could not be repaid. She doesn't say that in the children's book, but that is the reason they had to leave, right? The locusts wiped them out two years in a row, two years in a row, and finally they just gave up and they moved on. Um, so, and in the banks, in on the banks of Plum Creek, their pastor reads about the plague of locusts in Egypt, in Exodus, right? And he talks about how they brought Egypt to its knees in Exodus 10. 
But, you know, really the book of Joel would be a little more apt, I feel like. Because in Exodus, the plague of locusts has a cause and an effect and a moral purpose, right? Something God is using the natural disaster in Exodus to reveal his power to Pharaoh, right? Let my people go. And to punish Pharaoh when Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge God's power, right? Um, and in that instance, the natural disaster could be remedied through uh, repentance and prayer. Pharaoh even says, I've sinned against God. Moses, would you please tell God to make the locusts go away? Moses agrees. Moses prays to God. God takes the locusts away. And Pharaoh's remorse evaporates again. Oh, all better, right? Um, but in Joel, the plague of locusts does not come after a warning, right? It is not for an obvious purpose. It just comes, and the nation has to deal with the fallout. So, so Joel is more concerned with, with less concerned with the why did this happen, and more concerned with the how do we respond to calamity, right? We can't always figure out the why. How do we respond to calamity? Because it is clear from several places in the Bible that sometimes natural disasters are allowed by God or even brought about by God as warnings or punishments. Think of um, Noah's flood, right? Think of the plagues of Egypt, which we just talked about. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, think of there's going to be a drought for X number of years, right? Sometimes the natural disaster is brought about by God's planning, right? And it has a purpose. But it's also clear that sometimes a natural disaster is just a natural disaster, right? We live on a crowded planet that is active geologically, and it has weather systems and things we still haven't figured all the way out, right? And sometimes we just don't care. Um, we want that beach house, or we want that house in the hills, or you know, we're gonna do this, that, and the other, or there's too many of us, and corners get cut, and then the earth does what the earth does, and things flood, and buildings collapse, and they catch a fire, and lots of people die, right? But it's not that it was sent, right? Um, I, was, I remember I was just reading this book called Pompeii. It was like a, a fictional version of the last of Pompeii. And if you visited there, there's all those poor people trapped in ash for tourists to stare out, stare at for the rest of their lives, or the rest of eternity. <laughs> and, but they say Vesuvius could blow again, right? And it will be worse this time because there are so many more millions of people just living right there, living right there, right? And is that God's fault? No, it's not God's fault. Volcano that could blow at any moment, right? But we do it anyhow. We live for the day. Um, Scott loves to talk about the, the caldera under Yellowstone. It's like some super volcano. And if that mama blows, you know, the whole West Coast sinks into the sea and terrible stuff, right? Is that God's fault? No. We live on a geologically active planet, right? And we could all, I don't know where exactly we would live where there would be no natural disasters, but you know. Um, and, you know, um, what are you saying? Paul says, like, humanity creation fell with us and is subject to futility and groans in childbirth until it, too, can be healed and redeemed and set free. That's Romans 8. But, you know, sometimes a perfect storm is just a perfect storm, right? Not a specific judgment from God. Sometimes a natural disaster is just a result of us being at odds with God, with nature, with each other in general, and not in particular. And the situation in Joel seems to be one of those times, right? 
A fallen creation produces these infestations of these horrible locusts who have to eat, and so they eat, right? And they don't really care. Well, this food was for me, right? They don't care about that. They're just there to eat. And so they eat the harvest. They leave people to starve. Nothing personal, right? Nothing personal, Judah, or whoever is receiving this property. Um, and these, do you know they still have these, uh, there are still locusts flying around. We just are fortunate in the United States that the Rocky Mountain locust, which poor Laura and Wilder and family experienced, has gone extinct. Yay! Right? But there are plenty that have not. Um, my first job out of graduate school was working for a company that assessed earthquake risk in the developing world. I did not do any of that, right? I was like organizing those little conference and that kind of stuff. But um, that's what they did. And earthquakes happen all over the world. But in some places, they are far more damaging than other places, right? The building codes aren't up to snuff, right? There's poverty, there's overcrowding. So an earthquake is an earthquake. But the effect one has can be magnified by human choices and by human conditions, OK? So OK, fine. Does knowing that a plague of locusts, or a California wildfire, or an earthquake, or a tsunami, or a hurricane is nothing personal, does that help? We have brains that are always looking for cause and effect. And it's harder in some ways just to be presented with effect, right? Here it is. Um, there's part of us that can't help but believe there's got to be some cause, right? It's got to be something we can do about this. Um, I remember Lucy saying to me, Lucy was having a really bad week the other week, and she said to me, I feel like God is punishing me for something because I'm having such a bad week. And I thought to myself, well, you are a teenager, and I'm sure quite deserving of everything that is happening to you. But, but so, I didn't say it. Sometimes a bad week is just a bad week, right? It's not God out to get you. Sometimes a bad week is just a bad week. Um, you know, sometimes the question isn't, what did I do wrong to make this happen? The question is, how will I respond? Right? Sometimes the question isn't, what did I do wrong to make this happen? The question is, how will I respond? And we kind of prefer, what did I do wrong to make this happen? Because then you think, well, what can I do right to fix it? Right? Because it's in my control, if that's the question. But Joel doesn't deal with that. Joel is, how will I respond? How will I respond? This horrible thing has happened. How will I respond? Um, okay. So, funny, the response isn't that different, right? This is uh, chapter 1, verses 13 and following. Put on sackcloth and lament, you priests. Wail, you ministers of the altar. Come, pass the night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. So he called the nation to mourning and repentance, to introspection and to seeking. And not that there was a one-to-one -one correspondence between how they were living and what happened, but that our tendency in all circumstances, is to wander away from God, right? Maybe we take his blessings for granted. Maybe we seek him less when things are great. Maybe we go about our lives as if there weren't any God or there weren't any final reckoning coming. Or maybe we're just run-of-the-mill, common garden, daily sinners, right? 
repentance never hurts. I was down, um, we went to go visit Jackson, who is miserable at college, and then we um, went back and I stayed an extra day with my parents. My stepfather, I think I mentioned, has throat cancer. And, um, and it was a little alarming, he's gonna have surgery, he has to have surgery again after already having radiation, blah, 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 blah. Anyways, um, I've always had kind of a relationship with him. And, but we noticed, my sister and I noticed that this time around, now that he knows he has another major surgery, he was a little bit in the taking stock mode, so a little bit in the reminiscing about life mode, and we're like, oh, you know, what's happening? He's never talked like this before, you know, saying stuff like, because it was just my sister and my sister and me visiting, and he said, you know, oh, it's so nice to be a family of four. I told Scott that, and he's like, what's wrong with me and Dennis? I said, no, no, I think it was more about the 800 children we have, right? I don't think it's, but anyways, he just said no. But I got home last, uh, Saturday night late, and then on uh, Sunday morning, or Monday morning, whatever day it was, I got an email from him. He is not an emailer. He has been sending lots of pictures, he's been sending, in this taking stock mode, and he said, I know that our senses of humor haven't always been the same, and that sometimes I really irritate you. I burst into tears. What kind of horrible, sinful person cannot even go visit her stepfather who is suffering from cancer and taking stock of his life and cannot mask her irritation at times. That is me. That is me. Common garden sin. So, <clears throat> so anyways, all I'm saying is when any disaster in your life occurs, it never does any harm to repent and to go to God and say, you know what? Oh, I'm such a mess. Would you just do something with me, please? I'm just an ordinary day-to-day -day mess. So, anyways, oh, sorry, but I, I call myself first and I go, oh my God, I'm such a terrible person, I can't even like, be, I don't know. Anyways, I can't apparently. You know, you go home, you fall into those patterns and they're usually not really holy patterns. Have any of you noticed? Um, but it's terrible. I am the only Christian in my family and I, and he can tell when I'm irritated and they're like, anyways, I've got to move on. Um, Okay, so, what was I saying? Oh, so every calamity, okay, every calamity that might befall us, natural disasters, disastrous children, um, cancer, any calamity that might befall us foreshadows the horrors of a final day of the Lord. I don't know if you've noticed in Joel, but he keeps saying, day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is coming. Right? And the, the final day of the Lord is when all the accounts are totaled up and just payment is issued. Right? Um, as Joel says, and I read in 2.11, right? the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Right? When we hear about the book will be open, and not just, Christina, you know, your stepfather had cancer and you were quite irritable with him, right? <laughs> you know, everything, everything. How can that not be terrifying, right? If I burst into tears over that, how can they not be terrifying? Just say, oh, and then wait, I don't know, how much time do we have, people? Let's see. And then four minutes later, you do this, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, I had you look at Revelation uh, chapter 6, verses 12 and following. 
right? Because Revelation is about the day of the Lord, capitalized, right? The final day of the Lord that every miniature day of the Lord points to. Um, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and there came a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree drops its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll rolling itself up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the magnates, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, all the rest of us, slave and free, hid in the caves, and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So once the ultimate day of the Lord comes, right? Miniature one in Joel, ultimate one in Revelation, it is time to line up before the throne and accept your fate. And both the prophet Joel and the apostle John don't want their readers to be among the terrified that day. Uh, from all the descriptions they're giving us, it sure sounds terrifying, right? You can be as reassuring as you want, but it sure sounds terrifying. Death, war, destruction, natural disasters, God appearing in the flesh to judge us. And we're all like my teenage daughter. We've all got flaws and sins and a laundry list of things we've done or not done to hurt ourselves and others and God himself. What on earth do we do, right? Besides shaking our boots and maybe pee our pants. So here's what Joel says to you. What should we do, Joel? Okay. 2, 12, and 13. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relents from punishing. So in this lower, in this um, locust plague, in this lowercase day of the Lord, that foreshadows the final day of the Lord, returning to God and seeking his forgiveness, both as a body and a church and a country and a people, this is Joel's prescription, right? And as individuals, you know, to prepare for the many days of the Lord, to respond to him, and to prepare for the final day of the Lord, capitalized, right? The answer is the same. Go back to God. Go back to God. Get the slate clean. Ask for forgiveness, right? Ask for it individually. Ask for it corporately. Um, and, and respond in the right way to the com Calamities can be actually opportunities in disguise, right? Reminders. It can be an opportunity because it brings us back to God and reminds us what matters, reminds us who matters, right? Um, reminds us who does the saving, Reminds us what we need saving from, right? Um, and the, the prescription in Revelation is the same, right? This, the sky is falling and earthquakes and seas and just terrible things in Revelation. And the answer is always, you know, but for those who know the Lamb, go to him. Go to him, right? He, his blood can cover you up, right? Forgiveness 
and, and repentance can save you because God is the one who saves. And anything that drives you to God can help save you. Um, Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know, this is what Jesus says in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who mourn. Not what we want. We don't want mourning, right? But they will be comforted, right? If it drives you to God, say hooray for it. It can be a blessing, right? A locust plague, all these horrible things, whatever you've got going on in your life, you know, if you think of the laundry list of horrors that might be happening in your life currently, right? Let it drive you to God. Let it remind you of Him. Let it, um, let it push you to seek his forgiveness for your just run-of-the-mill, common garden, messing up. And it will be a good thing. God will bring good out of it. Okay, so how did God respond to the people sleeping in Joel? Yeah, there's a slide. Okay, the first thing it does, he has compassion, right? In 2.18. 2.18. 2.18. What? Two, oh, there we go. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people, right? He responds, when they come seeking him, God is reminded of his compassion. Right? He meets the needs they were afraid were going to go unmet. In verse 19, the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine and oil, all the things they were weeping and wailing because they thought they didn't have anymore. I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Right? He has compassion. He's going to meet the needs. Don't worry. He's going to meet the needs. Come to him and he will meet the needs. He tells us, don't be afraid. Right? After all those terrifying things, don't be afraid, but rejoice. Look at verse uh, 2.21. Turning the page. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. What a message to receive, right? When you are fearful of the future, fearful of what you're going to eat today, what's going to happen, um, he says, don't be afraid. In fact, rejoice, right? Rejoice. Somebody's taking care of you. Um, he says he not only restores but he gives abundantly, over and above, right? Skip down to verse 23. Be glad, O sons of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before, right? So not only do the rains return, but lots of rain. Lots of rain. Look how blessed we are. Lots of rain, right? Okay? And then in response to us drawing closer to him, he lavishes his spirit on us, right? He doesn't run the other direction. When we come closer, he comes closer. Look at verses 28 and following. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Right? When we draw closer to him, his spirit is there to come in and comfort us and give us vision and hope. And then finally, 
in all of chapter 3, right? He defeats our enemies and avenges us. So in Joel chapter 3, enemies a lot of times in Israel take form of different nations and things like this. But, and, you know, we may have those enemies too. We are not currently at war. But I'm sure all of you, I don't know if when you read the Psalms, when you read the Bible, and you read about enemies, we all have enemies, right? We have enemies. I think of, um, I think of my children and their anxiety and depression. It's like, I, those are enemies. And so when I hear those verses and I pray for God to come against my enemies, those are the enemies I am praying against. Um, cancer. These are the enemies we are praying against. Death, illness, anxiety, depression, spirit of suicide. These are enemies we are praying against. So it doesn't have to be Egypt, right? It doesn't have to be Assyria. You just name your enemy. And God says, come closer to me. And we are going to defeat those enemies. Sadly, may not be in the way you want them to defeat it or on your timeline. But God says, don't worry. They will get, they will get theirs. I will take care of them. Come closer to me. Um, okay, so the next slide. What do? The book of Joel begins in fear and despair and ends in us gathered close to our loving Father. Right? Our past is forgotten and forgiven because we drew close to God. For whatever reason, the locusts came. It pushed us to God, and He was there to meet us. All has been made new and abundant. What God is promising, don't worry, it's coming. Right? The years the locust devoured, I'm going to give back to you, he says, right? And then some. And we all have probably places in our lives where we feel like it just got eaten up, Lord. I don't know what happened to it. And through my own choices, through other people's choices, years of my life got devoured. And God says, come close to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to restore those, right? Um, Instead of starvation, we are fed. Instead of anger, we find forgiveness. Instead of death, we find life and joy renewed. And all because we respond by drawing closer, trusting to our Father as the only one who can save us. Um, I was going to finish by telling two Christmas stories, actually. Um, one is I have a friend who every single year since her kids were born, she would take her kids to the same mall Santa, it's not the Bell Square one. It's some other mall Santa. And this guy has been at it for years now, right? The oldest child was maybe 18, and that wasn't, he wasn't like a rookie Santa that year. So he's been at it for years. But it's so funny. So every Christmas, they put out all the pictures of year by year by year by year with the exact same Santa. And of course, the first years, you know, <laughs> the kids are shrieking in terror. And I know this. My kids were like this. You put them, like, here, go sit on this strange man's lap, right? Who's like all dressed like this and loud. And, um, and they're shrieking and crying. But then you watch as the years go by. Um, they know each other, right? There's a relationship. Because they see each other every year. And so you watch the kids grow and have this relationship with that exact same Santa. That's pretty cool. And I feel like it leads into the next story. I don't know, uh, some of you may have heard of Richard Mao. He was the president of Fuller. Um, and he came one time to Menlo Park Press, and he was preaching about Judgment Day and the horrors and terrors of Judgment Day. Anyway, so he tells this story about when he was little. And when he was little, he was in school. It was like preschool or kindergarten or something. And Santa came to visit. And Santa was terrifying, right? 
He was huge. He was red. He was bearded. He ho, ho, ho. And all the kids were screaming and crying. And terrified, terrified, and crying and trying not to pee their pants and that sort of thing, right? Ho, ho, ho. And then he pointed to him and said, come here, little boy. Right? And, you know, knees knocking, shaking, shaking, terror. Pulls him up really close. And then Santa pulled down his beard and said, don't worry, it's me, it's the neighbor. And he said, he said, that is what Judgment Day is for those of us who know Jesus, right? <laughs> Huge, terrifying, everybody's peeing their pants. But if we know Jesus, he says, it's just me. It's me, remember? We've been spending all this time together. Don't be fooled by all this, right? You know me. You know me. And there's no danger here. I want to give you good things, right? And I thought that was a perfect image because if you read the Bible, the day of the Lord and the terror and the horror, and Joel and the Apostle John are trying to say, yes, if you don't know Jesus, it'll be pretty darn scary to have to stand up there and answer for everything we've done in our lives. But if you do, you've already talked about that with him, right? There's no surprises or news there. You've already asked his forgiveness. And he's already said, yes, of course. All you have to do is ask. Of course, I love you. I'll take care of it, right? It's just me, the neighbor, right? So, anyways, so don't be discouraged by the current plague of locusts in your life, right? Draw near to God and see what he will do for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know, these, these stories of judgment, they do make us shake in our boots, Lord, especially if we have an incident such as I have where we feel bad about something we've done, Lord, and we bring it to you, Lord Jesus, only you are good, only you can save. And we pray, Father, as we come to you, we pray that we might be honest with who and what we are, that we might seek you, Lord, if we haven't been seeking you, that we might return to you if we run off like we always do, Father, and find that you are there to pity us, to tell us to rejoice, to give us hope, to draw us near, to restore the years the locust has devoured. Lord, we thank you that you are a good and loving Father, Lord, and you always welcome us back. In Jesus' name, amen.